Hello and welcome back to Redirected. My name is Andrew East and this is a show where we sit down with celebrities, athletes, entrepreneurs, really anybody who's experienced a pivot or change in life. I call these changes redirections and at some point or another we all go through them and so I wanted to sit down and talk with people who have made it through these changes well in order to glean some wisdom and also hear some pretty dang good stories. So today we're continuing our Forbes 30 under 30 series where we sit down with people who are redirecting the future and our guest today is Jeremy Kai, who is the CEO at italic.com. And italic is a -a one-of-a-kind membership that grants access to over a thousand quality goods from the same manufacturers as top brands, but you get them at cost. Anyway, Jeremy is an impressive entrepreneur and his story is really interesting. I'm, I'm really glad he took the time to have this conversation. He actually dropped out of college. He was going to school at Babson and dropped out in order to pursue these different ventures. He actually got paid to drop out, which he'll tell the story behind that. And uh, it's really interesting. Anyway, he's a really sharp guy. I enjoyed our conversation. And if you want to find out more about Jeremy and what he's up to, you can find his information as well as the link to italic.com down below. And if you haven't subscribed to the show, please do so and give it a rating on whatever platform you're listening on. Anyway, without further ado, I bring you Jeremy Kai. Jeremy, pleasure meeting you, man. I don't know how you made time for me given all that you do, but I'm honored that you uh, chose to sit down with me. So thank you. No, it's it's a real uh, honor to, to be included as a guest. I appreciate <laughs> you having me. So I'm scrolling through and I was like, okay, yeah, this guy started a, a, a clothing brand. Great. Oh, wait, no, he, he also is the founder of a, uh, a hiring platform. Okay. Actually, he does CBD as well. Dude, <laughs> I want to start, though. I'm, I'm curious. Uh, I love hearing people's upbringing and kind of the context within which they grew up, what their foundation was. If you can give us a, the abridged version of maybe what your parents did and how you got to where you are right now. Yeah, sure. So, um, my, I, to be honest, I've, I've like your archetypical, like, you know, uh, Asian American, like growing up story. So, you know, um, uh, super academic parents, um, they were both immigrants from, from China. Um, so, uh, so I was, you know, um, I guess the second generation here and, uh, and I grew up in, in a suburb of Chicago. Um, they actually, I think, um, uh, you know, went a little bit different of a path from the standard like immigrant experience. So they, um, they started a manufacturing company around wow. 40, um, 40 years ago or so when they got here. And, um, and, uh, and I guess like growing up, that was always kind of like a topic at, at the dinner table. And, and of course, like, you know, grades were, were paramount and all that stuff. But I think there was like that, you know, founder mentality, if you will, that was kind of baked into our, our, our family. Um, so, uh, so I went to college out east in, uh, in Boston at a small school called Babson, um, you know, and enjoyed my time there, but it wasn't for me. Um, I, uh, spent a lot of time, this is like back when I think, um, uh, like, I, I don't know if you were, you ever like participated in this, but there was like a lot of these things called like hackathons back in, in like 2013, 2014. Um, so this I knew is about them, not okay. smart enough to participate though. Sorry, Jeremy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, for, well, for what it's worth, I didn't either, but I was excited about them and I went to a bunch, even though I couldn't actually like, you know, code myself. Um, so, uh, so was super inspired by that. Um, and, uh, and then from then on, I had like, I, I know this is so stereotypical. I had like your stereotypical, you know, Asian upbringing, but also um, a very stereotypical, I think like tech background, which is I, I dropped out of college. Classic. San Francisco. Um, you know, there's, there's, I, I'm like cutting out a lot of the kind of 
the the dirt that we had to go through to, to get there. But like, you know, um, went to San Francisco, got this thing called the Teal Fellowship, which basically, you know, gives you money to stay out of school and drop out. So that helped me convince, um, you know, my, my parents to, 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 to leave college for a couple. I'm still technically on a leave of absence, I think like seven <laughs> years later. So, um, uh, and then I started a company called, um, uh, it was originally called Onboard IQ. We, we since rebranded it to fountain.com and it's, um, a hiring automation platform for large workforces. We did this thing called um, uh, Y Combinator, which allowed us to meet, I think, a lot of investors. Um, and then we've kind of built that into a, a business of its own. Um, and uh, and yeah, that's kind of the, the the quick quick and dirty, if you will. You did a fantastic job. I'm curious, the, the Teal Fellowship, I remember uh, when that was first becoming a thing. Is this still going on, do you know? Yeah, yeah, they've changed. It's no longer 20 under 20. I think the age limit now is like 23 or 20. And I think they have a couple of like college graduates in, in the program. So it's changed over the years. But um, back then it was 20 under 20. It stirred up quite a bit of controversy because people were like, you know, Peter Thiel paying people to not go to school, like how egregious and, and contrarian <laughs> of him. What was your experience like with that? Like, did you give him a pitch or how did yeah, that whole well, thing happen? Um, to, uh, to, to be totally transparent, like, I, I think, um, well, first and foremost, I think, like, Peter Thiel was not, like, a controversial figure back uh, back when it started. I think, like, yeah. he was always, like, you know, contrarian, if you will, and, and um, you know, uh, stirred the, the pot, but was not, like, um, like a political figure at all, really. Yeah. Um, uh, so back then, I think, like, you know, it's it really there's no downside, right? Like, if you were going to start a company and you, you like, knew you were going to do this anyways, um, what's the worst that could happen? You, you take two years. Um, the program was two years and they gave you a hundred thousand dollars for it. Mind you, that's taxed by the way. So it's not like you can live off of that in terms of, <laughs> um, so, uh, so you still have to have a job. Um, but, uh, but yeah, they basically gave you that money. And so long that you were, you know, stayed out of college, um, and, and you got in, um, there really wasn't a downside cause it gave you a network of kind of, you know, mm. uh, similar, similarly aged peers that, um, uh, for the most part, like didn't really exist in most people's networks. So it was great. It was, it was like a quick, you know, immediate friend group that you could kind of rely on. Plus the, the money you can't, you know, deny is great. Um, uh, and, uh, and I think like, you know, what we've realized over the, when I think the program first started, um, I'm sure they might have like a more, uh, like polished up spiel here, but like, I think the program was more like focused on like hard technologies, people who are going off after like moonshot ideas, like, you know, uh, longevity, like energy, cancer, et cetera. Um, and I think, you know, that was great, but those are things that you can't necessarily accomplish in, in two years alone. Um, and a lot of those, that early batch has gone on to do like amazing things. Um, but, um, but I think over the years it shifted more towards like being a lot more pragmatic. So with the age, you know, limit no longer, it's not, it's not like you have to be uh, dropping out. A lot of them still do, but you know, that's one, and then I also think in terms of the types of companies that they back, it's, or at least the founders that, um, I, I guess they're not all founders, but nowadays they, it used to be more like, you know, people who came from like the science, hard science backgrounds, like hard technology backgrounds. Um, whereas now I think it's much more practical around like, you know, if you have a B2B SaaS company or an e-commerce company or whatever it is, like it skews towards founders um, to show results for, for obvious reasons. I think mm -hmm. now, um, now it's just like proving that like, Hey, you can, you know, drop out of school. I don't think anyone doubts that you can drop out of school and like do, you know, great things now. I think that's, um, that was, I think the original intention of it, but, um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, 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 uh, it, there was like no downside in doing it. I think back then. And, and even today, I think it's still a great program. 
Yeah. Did you get in with the with the concept of what is now Fountain or? Yeah. We, that... So we had, um we we had traction by by then. I think um nice. you know that yeah we we, but yeah that's right. It was it was with Fountain. Okay. So you did Fountain is I guess now maybe six years old and you're you're on to something new a new project several new projects but I would love to hear uh, Italic and and how that came to yeah. fruition. So so Italic is like 100% my main thing. It's um, uh, so the the backstory there is um, around like my fourth or fifth yeah my fourth year in, into Fountain. Uh, if I have to be honest with you, like no kid drops out of college to work on like enterprise SaaS. It's just not like, you know, it's not like something that I think most, like if you ask 99% of the kids out there, it's like not something that you're actually passionate about. So for me, you know, Fountain was an awesome company. Um, really proud of the work we've, we, we did there and the team that we built. Um, uh, and it's still, you know, I think going great and, and really proud of that, but um, it wasn't something that I was like actually passionate about. It was something that, you know, we, we started, my co-founder and I, like we were both kind of young kids and we, we started it for the sake of starting a company. Um, and, uh, and I think, you know, um, four years in, I think like at that point I was like, okay, things are stable. Like I'd much rather actually work on something that I'm, I personally have like a lot more interest in. And I think, um, you know, during the, the years of working with Fountain, um, uh, I, I already mentioned my family has a manufacturing background. Um, you know, we noticed a lot of these, like what we, what they call direct to consumer companies. They're not actually direct to consumer, but um, uh, these, these like digitally native brands kind of pop up over the past decade, you know, starting with like 2008 with Bonobos and 2011, like Everlane and Warby and with that first cohort. And then I think in the 2014 to kind of 20, 2018 era, of um, like the second generation of those direct to consumer brands, I think um, you know something that we realized on the manufacturing side um, uh, is that uh, it doesn't actually matter if a, if a brand is like direct to consumer, e-commerce focused, digitally native, like whatever you call it, um, or if they're traditional or legacy or omni-channel. Like those things don't actually matter on the manufacturing side. And and um, and I think what got me excited was. Um, I, I think like the original vision of direct to consumer commerce was actually really exciting. It was, um, you know, the, they, they pitched like, this is such an overused term now, but they, they pitched cutting out the middleman, like democratizing access and, you know, all these buzzwords that um, at the time were actually pretty true because the original middlemen they were cutting out were, uh, were retailers. So instead of, you know, selling through Target or selling through Nordstrom's or whatever it was, whether you were fashion, CPG, like home goods, whatever, um, you know, instead of selling through those channels and giving up like 30 to 50% of your margin and markup, um, there was instead bypassing the retailer and selling in that case, direct to consumer online. Um, and I think that vision was really exciting, but I think by 2015, 2016, 2017, like it's, it changed a lot into basically like, hey, we're just like a cool brand online and we'll sell, we'll sell you products at a markup like we used to. Um, so that original vision of, I think like, you Essentially know, like a digital retail store and not like uh, a deep, yeah, I mean, yeah, I got you. Um, no, nothing wrong with that business model fundamentally. Like it's worked for, you know, uh, at, at this point in time, like 60, 70, 80 years in a, in a row. It's it's like, there's nothing um, in terms of like building a brand that, that way, there's nothing flawed about it. But I think um, what was more exciting was like, okay, if you can actually remove more middlemen, 
um, really the last middleman standing is the brand. And if you think about it from the manufacturing side, um, you know, it doesn't matter if you were a direct to consumer brand or a legacy brand, like manufacturers don't treat them all as the same. They're just brands and manufacturers make money through very small markup on top of cost of goods and labor. Um, and then brands will buy that inventory and sell it. Like whoever buys the inventory gets to basically price it however, which way they want. And most times like brands will sell it, you know, mark it up for five, 10, 50, sometimes even 15 X um, from what the, the actual product costs to make. Um, so you could have scenarios where like on a hundred dollar or um, you know, $150 sale, like a manufacturer could be pulling in like four or $5 of their own profit. Uh, and they're the ones actually making the final product. And like, we know how much these things actually cost. So um, the idea was, especially with like our manufacturing background, it was how do we actually empower you know, the manufacturers to basically go directly to consumer so, um, uh, so that they can capture more margin for themselves. And also it's kind of a win-win because by bypassing the brand as well as the retailer in this case, um, uh, unlike the kind of digitally native brands that just bypass the retailers, um, you can get like way cheaper prices for um, you know, consumers. Like we're talking 50, 60, 70, sometimes 80% lower. Um, so that was kind of the idea for Italic. And you know, I've been thinking about it for a couple of years, talking to a couple of manufacturing kind of partners in the States as well as in, in, um, in China and, um, and, uh, and decided like, Hey, you know, might as well go for it. This was uh, prior to like the trade wars and, and um, you know, uh, that, that whole kind of ruckus, but um, yeah, that was the, the genesis, I guess. So you part, you like partner with the manufacturers essentially. Right. Yeah. So the way, um, the way most brands work is they'll, uh, uh, they'll buy inventory, you know, um, at the price point that the manufacturer, typically manufacturers will make 15 to 25% on top of cost of goods and labor. So let's say a shirt costs like $16 and, um, uh, and, and they'll sell that shirt to a brand for $20. That brand will typically go and sell, and this is just in fashion, but like it's pretty representative across the board, um, regardless of the category. That brand will mark that up 5, 10, 15 X. So generally, let's just say like conservatively, it's a 5 X. You know, they'll sell that shirt for $100, whether it's direct, direct to consumer or through retail. Um, and, uh, and they'll pocket like $80 on that transaction. Like granted, a lot of that has to go towards, you know, acquiring the customer and marketing, but like on a hundred dollar transaction that manufacturer is making four dollars. Mm. So in our opinion, like in my opinion, like that manufacturer is getting screwed out of the equation. Like they, even if they wanted to sell direct to consumer, they don't really have a distribution channel to do so. So the way Italic works is underneath the hood, we operate more of a marketplace model. Um, so for those who don't know what Italic is, basically today it's a membership that um, allows our members access to over a thousand products in kitchenware, you know, bedding, apparel, et cetera. Um, at prices uh, where we don't actually try to monetize or make a profit. So our prices tend to be very competitive. Um, but the way we work with manufacturers is we will partner with them, uh, not just as like, you know, oh, go ahead, sorry. Well, um, so you're literally not making a, a profit on the on the product. You're, you're earning revenue through the membership. That's right, yep. Nice, okay, continue. <laughs> well, it's nice in some ways and not so nice in others. Um, <laughs> But, uh, but yeah, you know, so on the manufacturing side, like basically what we do is we, uh, instead of treating them as vendors whom we simply place like purchase orders against and, you know, we'll mark up the products, um, we want them to be our financial partners. So they will actually, you know, in our case, they will take inventory risk. Um, so they're actually, you know, uh, basically investing in the products that will go on to Italic. Um, that's how we've been able to get to, you know, over a thousand SKUs in less than two years. 
Um, and then, uh, and then um, basically their incentive for doing so is we'll try to pay them out um, double or triple margins, like their standard profit margins. Um, and by not taking, you know, for not, not seeking to take your profit on our orders, we'll still be able to command like 64%, like our average um, uh, comparable price to like the, the closest competitor is like 64% less. Um, that's how we achieve like such a large discount um, is by not monetizing that, but we're still paying out a higher um, margin to the manufacturer. So, um, so that's how we work. Like we want them to basically have like a, a reason to take that risk, but also like really if, if you zoom out, like the goal is for us to basically provide them the toolkit to access a global market that they normally wouldn't be able to um, uh, unless they wanted to sell through, like basically sell bulk orders to a brand and make like pennies on the dollar. So um is, kind of is the lead time massive or h- higher than normal? Uh, you know, um, I can't say it's fast. Uh, it, it takes us anywhere from like six to 18 months to launch a single product. So it, it is like not fast, but um, I will say we're like fast relative to the rest of the industry. And because the manufacturers are putting their own money on the line, uh, they, they have a natural like incentive to prioritize uh, the italic order. Um, because it's their own money. Like the sooner yeah, they get yeah, it to yeah. us, the sooner we can start, you know, um, basically selling it and issuing payouts to them. But from the consumer side, when I place the order, I get it. Oh not- yeah, three to five days. Yeah. Nice. Awesome. And a thousand SKUs, Jeremy? Yeah. You know, it's kind of crazy to think about because um, ordinarily that would, you know, it, it, the past two years have been like a real kind of mad rush to <laughs> get the right team in place and, um, you know, develop these because we're not, um, I know you mentioned we're like a fashion company, but we're actually more, um, I mean, with COVID, of course, uh, this, this has changed, but like we, we um, transitioned um, most of our sales actually to, to home goods. So in 2020, like for obvious reasons, um, you know, home goods is actually the majority of our sales. And I think like what we're excited about is where we're headed in the future, like consumer electronics, pets, travel. We just launched luggage yesterday, um, you know, fitness products, outdoors. Um, I think the model we found to be flexible um, across most categories, what we just wanted to kind of prove out was just, hey, can we start with a premium assortment of like really top quality, um, you know, products from manufacturers that produce for like the world's best brands already, um, and then kind of bring it down market from there. Um, but yeah, a thousand skis, it's taken a while. It feels like much longer than two years. Jeremy, I apologize for calling you just a fashion company. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> uh, why the name it italic? Um, you know, I have a press, uh, answer to that and a real answer. <laughs> uh, uh, the press answer is actually pretty cool. In the 1400s and 1500s, the italic like typeface was, um, basically, uh, held as a patent by the papal state. So, um, so only like a select view could have could use the, the italic like you know um uh typeface and then um and then a german printing press basically came along and like created um an italic like block font and democratized it throughout europe so that it became like wow. really common places i i know it's a stretch but basically like hey you know this is this used to be accessible to the very select few and um our goal is to like kind of democratize access to that to that, that like premium product to you know uh the actual like majority of the world um, that's the press answer. The, the real answer is I had the domain italic.io um, since college and uh, I couldn't like find a use case for it. Um, and, uh, and for italic, like we came up with, you know, when we were starting the company, it was like, we came up with a hundred, 150 names 
and uh, and we always came back to the the, the word and name italic because it felt premium it felt like it would represent our brand well and company well so um we ultimately went with that and and got the domain you know the dot com so that's the real answer but nice. you know we'll, we'll pretend we didn't say that what are your goals with italic i'm curious like five years down the road what do you want it to be you already have a thousand SKUs, bro yeah well um next year what we wanted well really um even though we have a thousand, the main complaint we get from our members is like, hey, you're missing this, you're missing that. Um, so we actually want to significantly expand the product assortment. Um, so really the, the two goals is, is, is quite obvious on the, on the supply side, we want to get, take it from a thousand to 10,000 and then 10,000 to a hundred. Like really the goal should be to have a quality goods offering in any kind of aspect of your life. Um, for example, you know, we haven't announced this yet, but we're working on like fitness products for like, um, uh, you know, dumbbells. And, and those are like heavily marked up products that, you know, I think like, especially in the era of, of coronavirus, like people really have been like, they're sold out everywhere, um, despite the high price point. So, you know, that's a product where um, basically, uh, you know, uh, we saw an opportunity, we were able to develop something quickly, and we'll launch it to market. Um, so we want to do that like thousands of times over. And uh, basically build an assortment where, you know, the, uh, if you have an idea of like something that you want to buy, uh, we want to be one of the destination points along with like an Amazon or an Etsy or an eBay or whatever you would look at um, to, to search just to see like, oh, does Italic have that? Um, because they know that it's a really high quality product at a price point that um, is frankly unmatched in the industry. Um, so that's on the, the supply side. On the demand side, it's like, hey, can we build a customer base and membership base that um, is super loyal, it comes back year over year, and we really have to stand true to our value proposition, you know, on every product that we sell, um, so that they, they, they keep coming back. And, and the goal by then is to offer auxiliary kind of services to them. Once we get to a sufficient, sufficient scale, then I think there's a lot of kind of doors that open in terms of, you know, services, products that we can actually develop to, to sell to our customers, not just in the form of um, kind of like quality goods. So, mm. yeah. So you mentioned your experience at what is now Fountain. Uh, you, you left because it wasn't really resonating personally with you. Did did Italic come from some personal vendetta against the the retail stores, or do you feel deeper connected to it, to this project than than your previous? Yeah, you know, if I have to be honest, that, that I, I definitely do so. Um, you know, think so. And and uh, this was, um, you know, working on Italic, I think, came out of a personal, um, I think, pain point um, more so than like starting a company for the sake of it. Um, yeah. so the, I, I guess the story with Italic was like, hey, you know, my family's been in manufacturing for like 40, yeah. 50 years. And uh, even if they wanted to sell uh, direct to consumer, they never had a channel to do so. Mm. Um, and even if they had a channel to do so, um, yeah. say if, if a manufacturer wanted to start selling on Amazon, which like a lot of them have the same idea, um, it's it's not like an overnight, like, okay, let's, you know, spin up a division and, and start selling it. it. There's a lot of yeah. work that goes into it. So yeah. uh, basically the goal is to empower them. Yeah. Interesting. I, I, I know you had mentioned that earlier, but thanks for revisiting us. No, no, no. Uh, all good. Um, so I would also like to talk about, I believe you co-founded um, another company with your uh, significant other, Katie. <laughs> yeah. Is that correct? That's right. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Tell um, us about that. So, um, so we started a company called Not Pot. It's a really fun, you know, American wellness brand. I like to say American wellness brand because you know, CBD, I think has a certain like connotation with it. Um, I like to always also point out that we started um, uh, the, the CBD brand 
um, in uh, 2016, 2017, before the whole craze, like before wow. the market kind of popped off. So this was still back when I think it was like relatively gray and federally, you know, speaking gray, um, uh, a gray area to operate in. So um, yeah, the story there was just like, hey, we, um, you know, my, 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 my girlfriend, uh, Katie, she, she had a kind of uh, a health issue in, um, uh, in college. We both dropped out. We both, you know, um, grew up in the same hometown um, uh, in, in Chicago. Um, she went to Penn, I went to Babson. We both dropped out, um, you know, one year out of, uh, out of college. And, um, and I think for, for us, like, you know, it was, uh, we started looking into products that like, you know, we just felt like were healthy and, and kind of could, um, serve a lot of people, um, uh, you know, with, with, um, I guess like wellness benefits. Um, and we looked through a lot of different products and we, we tried a lot of different things. Like originally we started the company selling, like, this is also, you know, we were ahead of the curve here. We were selling adaptogenic coconut butters. So, um, you know, we would mix, um, uh, like all these different like herbs and supplements into coconut butters, which even at the time was not a popular kind of product. Um, so we sold that for, um, uh, a couple of years. Um, and then, uh, and then I think we, we found out, we actually introduced, um, uh, CBD into one of, uh, the coconut butters and that was actually by, it just took off. Um, and we didn't really like know what to expect. We just figured like, Hey, this is a really interesting ingredient. Um, I think a lot of people could, could get a lot of benefits out of it. I'm not going to, you know, tout all the benefits cause that's done many times over. And I also don't want to get in, I guess, like trouble for doing so for overselling anything. But, um, yeah, yeah. we saw that basically we saw both the, um, the health as well as financial benefits of the product, um, from business lens. And we basically, um, steered uh, a lot of our efforts into building a, a chocolate line, which was the first iteration of, of, um, the brand not pot. Um, uh, and that sold like crazy. Um, and, and, uh, and at the time the market for those products was still very small as well. Um, so I think we accessed like a niche product at the right time. And then, um, and then over the years we've developed it into kind of what it is today. So today we have, you know, our gummy product, which is our flagship, um, you know, uh, it's, uh, 600 milligrams of, of CBD, um, per bottle, 30 gummies per, per bottle. Um, and we also introduced, um, you know, new lines like our tinctures for pets and, and human consumption The we, we've always tried to price them fairly aggressively. So for example, our oils come like three times, actually five times closer to like the comparable kind of brands that sell it. Um, I think, uh, same with the pet products. Um, but yeah, we've, we've just bootstrapped that company to, to, I think, cash flow positivity. It's been, um, a real, I, I, I can't even, um, so that is that has been a learning lesson in and of itself. Um, uh, also, because the, you know, with Italic, we work with like you know uh, 60, 70 different manufacturers around the world. They're like these are publicly listed companies. These are not like you know small mom and pop shops. They're not sketchy by any means. CBD is a totally different world. Um, and I work with like every type of manufacturer you can imagine. It, uh, except CBD is 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 um, you know you get some sketchy players in there. So. You know, uh, I think learning the lessons there over the years um, were really painful financially and personally, but we, uh, I think we're in a good place now. Wow. And there's also a social aspect to it. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So every month we take a portion of our profits and we donate it to a different bail organization. We've been doing this like for years. So it's not like we spun this up overnight. Um, I think a lot of companies do this now, which is, which is great. It's not a, anything we would, you know, we, we were super excited about that, but um, since inception, we've been taking a portion of proceeds and donating it to a different um, kind of like bail fund per se. Hmm. Um, you know, we believe that 
Um, a lot of people over the decades uh, in our industry have been, you know, wrongly incarcerated. So um, different bail organizations help fund um, uh, the legal um, and bail side of, of um, you know, uh, people who are incarcerated. We don't like specifically target those who are incarcerated for, you know, mm-hmm. um, possession of like marijuana or drugs. Um, uh, it, instead, it's just like a general purpose vehicle for kind of um, our, our social impact, if you will. But um, that's always been an important part of the brand. And did you adopt the uh, the health geek portion of Silicon Valley as well? Are, are you no. into that? <laughs> I tried. I, you know, I was the first year or two. I don't live, you know, I I think San Francisco and Silicon Valley as a whole has a lot going for it. But there are certain things that are, that are just like really cringy, you know, and, and um, just kind of frankly embarrassing about it. Um, if I have to be honest with you. And and uh, I, I think, um, you know, I, I, I early on I had like, you know, I, I, I drank Soylent sometimes during the day. I like, you know, I fasted. I, I like had all these nootropics, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I tried that. I, that was a phase. Um, nowadays, you know, I, I just live a pretty normal life. I could exercise more. That's probably one thing. I, <laughs> I, I didn't say that to guilt you. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. So you've, you've done so much. I'm curious when you look back over how you've gotten to where you are today, what are three things that maybe someone else has, has told you? Obviously you've been around some, uh, you know, I think top tier thinkers. Uh, and I, I also, I just, I'm curious, what is it like to be a genius personally? Like, uh, is, that a, <laughs> is that a burden or a, or a <laughs> that is the last thing I would call uh, myself. So I, I definitely yeah. cannot, you know, agree with you there. Um, <laughs> I, I mean, I think the, the three, you know, if I have to be honest, it's super stressful. It's like very, very time consuming. There's a lot going on every day. Um, your mind's always, you know, racing somewhere. If you're on, if you're taking a, a rare vacation, uh, I'm not trying to promote this. Like, you know, I think there's like this uh, tendency for founders to like say everything's great or like the hustle culture is great. Like, like it, it 99% of the time it sucks. It's, it's like you're in the grind and um, you're, you're, you're solving problems that aren't like necessarily that exciting or interesting, but you know, when it does pay off in those like 1% times where it's, it's, um, it's exciting, it's, it's worth it. So I think, um, I don't reckon, and this is what I was going to say about the Teal Fellowship too. It's not right for like 99.9% of the U S population, at least to kind of drop out of school and, and start a company. I also don't think that's right. Like in general for people to take this lifestyle, um, uh, uh, unless they like really know what they're getting into. So mm. that's the first thing I would, I would caveat by saying, and also like most founders who, you know, I think have started these companies. I've, uh, a, a lot of the successful ones I've met are, are not like geniuses by, by any, you know, stretch of the imagination. So, uh, it's a lot of just like hard work and, and, um, it seems sexy on the outside, but it's like really not. So you'd yeah. have to know that getting into it. Um, the three things I would say, one is, um, uh, uh, I, I would say like, this is probably the most important. You, you got to do something that like you actually enjoy doing. Um, if you're starting something or you're working on something, um, uh, and this isn't, this doesn't have to mean like you're starting a company, but you know, you, you ought to be doing something that like actually brings joy to your life or, or, um, something you're personally excited about. I got sucked into doing something like I started a company for the sake of it at a pretty young age. And, you know, uh, you can't really escape that unless you have like a golden parachute of some means. And, um, and also I was in a you know fortunate position where like, I didn't have that many financial burdens. I wasn't married. I didn't have kids. So I was in a place where I could have afforded to do that. But if you don't, um, you know, you're kind of stuck and it's hard to get out of that. So, mm. uh, even though you're the founder and boss or whatever it is. Um, so that's one, I think secondly, um, uh, uh, I, I think it's important that you, I mean, this, these are kind of cheesy, but 
um, you should surround yourself with people who are better than you or, you know, really care about you or, you know, like have friends that aren't just like work related or, or, you know, people to use, if you will, like instead just have, you know, genuine connections who mm. you enjoy, you know, spending time with getting dinner or whatever it is. Can't do that now, but, um, yeah. you know, I think that's, that's, uh, that's one thing that I wish I did, um, much earlier on. Um, cause you know, being a founder or doing your own thing can be super isolating. Um, and then I guess the the uh, the last thing I would say, oh sorry, that's supportive girlfriend. Oh yeah, well, <laughs> that was actually I was going to tee into that, but yeah, I mean I was going to say have a great partner like that. You know, Katie, my my girlfriend's in in the background, but uh, yeah, I I think it's it's really important to um, you know have someone to kind of go through um, uh, the ups and downs with. Um, I think whether like you're that could be like romantic that could be professional like you know in in in, um in in my case i was like a solo i'm a solo founder for italic and that that's that's it's like tough being kind of that alone Mm -hmm. but um having someone who's like a really strong kind of supporter on the side or even just like person to bounce ideas off of like to kind of go through the the grind if you will is is uh, of of life is, is really helpful so um yeah those are my three yeah i i uh i did notice that and props to you i maybe it's easy in my business to give my wife a ton of credit because we kind of do everything together but i loved how on your website on your linkedin everywhere you know you were very open with you know with your pride of hey oh, I started yeah. this with, with my significant other so i i don't know like you don't actually see that a lot which is surprising like not that the love's not there but the the public appreciation isn't there so uh, I love seeing that. And dude, I, I like your honesty as well. Uh, you have no shortage of ambition. That's for sure. No shortage of talent. So, um, I appreciate you sharing all your wisdom today with me. And for those listening that want to hear what Jeremy's up to now, um, I'll link italic and not pot and all the other projects he's involved with as well as his, um, his social information down below. But Jeremy, thanks so much for giving me the time. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I I really appreciate it.